Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Run with me to John chapter 3 if you got your Bible or pull it out on your phone, however you're going to get there. I want to read and look at, I think, one of the most uh, overlooked, maybe misunderstood, and yet well-known passages in Scripture. And then we'll just see what God wants to do. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Say Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Who was a member of the Jewish ruling ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know you are, that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, he didn't really ask a question, but Jesus is just going to reply to the question. Have you noticed that Jesus doesn't answer the questions that people ask him? He answers the questions that he wants people to ask them. I've realized that's a really good way. When somebody's asking you hard questions, just don't, don't even worry about what they're asking. Just answer the one that you want to answer, right? <laughs> Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How many of you have heard that your whole life? Nobody can see, say see, See. like see, the kingdom of God. Say kingdom of God. You know what the kingdom of God is, right? We talk about this pretty regularly. It's it's the realm of God's influence, his his rulership, it's his domain, right? So it's, it's the space that God exists in and over. Here's what's interesting. Genesis 1, 1, from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was always supposed to be in existence underneath the rule of the heavens. You see, God did not create the heavens and the earth detached from each other, but actually the the heavens, the, the spheres that God lives in, the spiritual realm was always meant to be over the natural realm. What sin has done is it has divorced the connection between the two. And so now we live in the natural, totally unaware of the spiritual. Though the spiritual still exists over the natural. And so what happens is we're we're not awake. We can't see what God is actually doing in the spiritual realm that influences the natural realm and causes everything to have its meaning and its purpose. What, what we've done in, in, in the scientific age is we've said that everything has a natural cause and a natural effect. And, and we've basically ruled out anything that we cannot prove scientifically by repeated tests. And the problem is, is that what's unexplained, we figure out how to to rule out because we want everything to fit nicely and neatly in the box of the explainable. But what Jesus is saying, the kingdom that you're looking for, Nicodemus, is something that you're not going to see until you're born again. 
Now, Nicodemus is, is waiting for a kingdom. He's waiting for a king, a Messiah, that's going to bring in a natural political kingdom, one that you could see with your natural eyes. But what God is saying to Nicodemus is, hey, or what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, hey, there is a kingdom that is coming and indeed is actually at hand among you, inside of you, all around you, but you can't see it and you're not going to be able to see it until your eyes are open, until you're born again. Nicodemus asks what probably it seems when you're reading the story, seems like a ridiculous question, but if you have no understanding of what Jesus is saying, you hadn't heard the story before, it actually kind of makes sense. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Ridiculous question, but it kind of makes sense. He's like, what in the world are you saying, Jesus? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, meaning of a woman, and born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind, that word wind is the word pneuma, which actually also means spirit. Construction guys, it's where we get the word pneumatic. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So when I put my faith in Jesus, what happens is, is that I get regenerated. I get new life inside me that causes me to be aware of a whole nother realm all around me. Here's our problem, is that we live in a hyper-sensational day. There is so much going on in us, around us, so much vying for our attention that we actually be, become desensitized to the spiritual realm and, and so aware of what's going on naturally. And here's the truth. We were created to be sensitive to what God is doing so that when the wind starts blowing, we're moving with it. We're created for that. But it's so much easier to get our sensations from everything that we know that we don't actually become sensitive to the Spirit of God. You want to know why we live in a culture that struggles with like hypersensuality? It's because we were made for connection, for, for even feeling that brings intimacy and connects us. And so when we settle for what is sensual instead of what is spirit, what happens is we get desensitized to the spirit and hypersensitized to everything else. It's interesting when, when Paul writes to different churches, he gives them these lists of, of things that you're not going to inherit the kingdom if you do these things. Go with me real quick. We'll look at one in Galatians chapter five. Okay, so it says in 
in verse 16. So if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are so that you are not to do whatever you want, but that you are led by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what we've done. We've taken the kingdom and separated it from our reality now and we've made passages like this simply about things that keep you from going to heaven when you die. This has nothing to do, not that it doesn't have implications for, but what Paul is not speaking to, what Jesus is not speaking to in John chapter three is primarily the afterlife. What he's speaking to is an openness to what God is doing, the ability to embrace and inherit his kingdom here and now among us. And what we've done is we've, we've made our, our salvation a transaction that gets us into heaven in the afterlife instead of a transformation that makes me awake to what God is doing here and now. And when I recognize that, that my life is supposed to be in partnership and under the rule of the king and his kingdom, then all of a sudden I realize that I need to be very disciplined in all of my life so that I can protect my passion, which is for him. Christians are not supposed to be known by their disciplines. Let me say that. Christians are not supposed to be known by their disciplines. They're supposed to be known by their passion, by their love. Here's the deal. Discipline protects your passion. I married the most beautiful woman in the world. Here's what that means for me. If, if I guard, if I discipline myself and guard my gaze, guard my mind, then from here until I die, I get to be connected to the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, it doesn't have to be any, any of your value system. It has to be my value system. Does that make sense? Yes. And so if I give myself over to other competing attractions, then what happens is I'm not just robbing from her, I'm actually robbing from myself. Because all of the sudden, I've got all of these images, all of these people, all of these competing ideas that are infringing on my passion and my dedication to her. And so, let me, I'll just finish that rabbit, shoot it, and then we'll move on. <laughs> Men and women, all of you, when you start to give over 
your mind, your eyes, when you don't guard yourself and you give yourself over to lust, what you're doing is you're not simply stealing from the one that God has from you, you're actually stealing from yourself. But when you fix your gaze on the one that God has given to you, then she, he, becomes your definition of beauty because beauty is in the eye of the, the beholder. Only an undisciplined person allows culture to tell them what beauty is. But when I fix my gaze on Lauren, she becomes my definition of beauty. She's got short hair, then I'm a short hair guy. She's got long hair, I'm a long hair guy. If she puts on 300 pounds, then I'm, I'm, I'm a big woman guy. Right? You understand what I'm saying? And, and let me say that, that I could teach on that all day long. What I'm trying to do though is give you an analogy. Is this, that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we live underneath his rule and reign, it becomes what defines our life. And so I have disciplines in my life in order to protect my passion. My passion is not my discipline. And so I wake up earlier than everybody else in my house in order to protect my passion with God and, and spending a time of worship and prayer and reading scripture because I want to be sensitive to him. Do I have to do that in order to be sensitive to him? Absolutely not. If I miss it, does that mean I don't get to be sensitive to him for a day? No. But I found some disciplines that protect my passion. And so when, when I become most aware of him, then all of the sudden what I've done is I've cultivated a sensitivity that allows me to be aware of him anywhere I go, everything I do, I now have him in mind. And what happens is we get so lost in our thought life that we, that, that we actually don't have control of our minds and we end up chasing all sorts of passions instead of living with dedication to the one thing worth living for. Back to Nicodemus, verse nine. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? He's like, hey, I could go over your head if I want you to, Mr. Teacher, but I'm just keeping it main and plain simple here. Keeping the hay down where the cattle can eat it. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man who is in heaven. Some translations don't have that last part, but it's actually there. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that I actually exist now, both in the natural realm and in the heavenly realm. In the book of Ephesians chapter two, Verse six, it says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That'll make your head hurt. I am, not I will be, I am. 
Not one day when I die, I'll get to go to heaven. Here's the truth. You already are in heaven. If you're seated with Jesus, in Jesus, in heavenly places, then you actually already exist in the heavenly realm which is not about some far off distant place. It's the place where God rules and reigns on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's the way that his rule is coming. It's the way that his rule exists over the whole earth. That you actually already exist there. That's why our responsibility is to become sensitive to him and all that we have in him that we would become open to God working through us in the spiritual realm, that we're actually temples of the Holy Spirit. A temple, remember, we talked about this for a few minutes last week, is the place where heaven and earth meet. In, in Matthew 24, when Jesus is saying heaven and earth will be destroyed, what he was doing is he wasn't predicting the end of a collapse of even heaven. That doesn't even quite make sense. What he was doing is he was actually predicting the destruction of the temple because the temple was the place called heaven and earth. It was a phrase that they would use for the temple. And what he was actually saying is that this temple will be destroyed, which is the place called, where heaven and earth meet. And what's interesting is that now you and I are the temple. Over and over again, Paul writes, did you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? You're actually the place where the Spirit of God is actually able to be unleashed on the earth now is primarily through believers in him because we're supposed to be the place that heaven and earth meet. And so our responsibility then is to live a lifestyle that cultivates a sensitivity to his spirit so that when the wind blows, when the spirit moves, I'm moved by it so that I'm wide open to what God is doing and so that I can then live in partnership with him. Jesus says this, that I don't do anything on my own. I only do what the Father is doing. He says this in John 15, remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, if you make your home, that word remain is actually the word abide, and the best way to understand it would be to make your home in. Become so comfortable in my presence that, that that's where your home is. You've made your home in me. I love what Steve said, where it says you'll bear much fruit. Fruit is not something that you create by striving. It's just excess life. It's just life that flows out of you. You want to live a fruitful life, become so immersed in the presence of God. There's this phrase that I've heard before. I think it's ridiculous. He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Have you heard that before? You know who one of the most heavenly minded men who ever lived was? King Solomon. Solomon brought wisdom and solutions, real solutions to real problems in his day that transformed culture and society. People, when we read it, we miss what it's actually saying. Solomon did not simply ask God for wisdom. What he asked God for was an ear to hear and a heart to understand. 
an ear to hear and a heart to understand. What he was saying is, God, make me sensitive to you. Because he knew that all of the solutions to every problem that ever existed, both then in his day and in ours, already exists in heaven. Every solution that you need already exists in that place. And that, the, that his role in his day, and I believe your role in our day, is to access that and bring it into the areas of influence that God has given you. So that you would actually be so heavenly minded that you are so earthly good. It doesn't mean that you have to be in la-la land all the time. Paul said, if I'm out of my mind, it's for my sake. And if I'm in my mind, it's for your sake. So you don't have to just walk around all, all goofy all the time. You can do it some of the time. But that we would actually live in a way that we're so sensitive to him. I, I love reading the, the histories of some of the great inventors throughout history. Many of them were people who were following Jesus and they were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. What would happen if a people just became so sensitive to God? That we're not, we're not moved by what's moving our day, but we're moved by him. I believe we face some, some serious challenges in order to do that. We have to get rid of rushing around busyness all the time. We, ha we have to create space to be with him. What I, what I love, though, is that what, what I, when I live in this place of devotion with my life, my life is actually not dependent on quiet times. I, I love spending time with God. I think everybody should spend like dedicated time with God. But what Paul said was this, that I would pray without ceasing. That I would constantly be in this place of prayer. I wanna read you this that God and Brother Lawrence wrote On, the, on practicing the presence. This is challenging. He says, I have quitted all forms of devotion and set prayers, but those to which my state obliges me, those required of me. And I make it my business only to persevere in his holy presence, wherein I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God, which often causes me joys and raptures, raptures inwardly, Let's see. Sorry, I lost it there. Inwardly and sometimes outwardly. So great that I am forced to use means to moderate them and prevent their appearance to others. At other times, I apply myself to prayer. I feel all my spirit and all my soul lift itself up without any care or effort of mine. And it continues, as it were, suspended and firmly fixed in God as its center and place of rest. 
the great brother Lawrence, known as a man of continual prayer, says he stopped praying. He started enjoying and rolling in the glory of God wherever his state obliged him. He followed the joys of God and the prompting wherever he felt the cloud leading him. We tend to think of prayer as doing something. But I think when Paul says pray without ceasing, what he's actually saying is live in that continual state of communion, of prayerfulness, so aware of the presence of God. And so here's what I've done with my life is I've said, okay, I'm going to create space to cultivate a sensitivity to God. We do that in our times of worship. What we're doing when we are worshiping together, what we're doing is, is we're enjoying the presence of God together. Now, it's about God, but what God does is he loves to inhabit the praises of his people. And so he shows up and there are times probably when we just get excited about music and we have an emotional response to music. That's true. But there are often times in this setting together that we are experiencing the presence of God. And, and, and what happens is there is, in our corporate time together, there is aware, an awareness cultivated that should inform our personal walk together or uh, with God. So that as I'm, as I'm worshiping here, it actually transforms the way I live out there because I'm actually being discipled by everyone here. We're all learning what it looks like to experience the presence of God together. But I, I, I should not, as I mature, I should not have to wait till next week to experience the presence of God. But what happens is you guys have helped me, and this is true for me, have helped me become sensitive to the presence of God so that when I'm all alone, I know what it's like when he shows up. Let me, let me carefully help you with what I just said. I know what it's like when he shows up. What I don't mean is that God is distant. I think one of the greatest plagues, one of the, the, the worst understandings that the church has is an idea of distance and separation. You house the presence of God. God is always with you. He's in covenant with you. You can't scare him off. He's always with you. He's in you. And there are times still when he comes upon you that you need to be aware of his moving. Like he's just sitting with you and he loves to just sit with you. But as, but there are times when, when, when he, he, he gives you a whisper and it's, it's head this way. Say that, bless them, give this. And what we're doing is, is we're cultivating a sensitivity to him that is not a cerebral sensitivity, but it's this holistic sensitivity. And as we do that, then God can move in our lives and through our lives. There are all sorts of things that you can do. Prayer, I believe, is one of the best ways to become sensitive to God. One of the ways that I've developed sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit is to ask God questions. I, I believe that curiosity, that, that curiosity is actually a part of honor and delight. If I'm sitting with somebody who has many more years of experience and expertise in an area 
that I'm interested in, then what I do is I actually ask questions so that I can learn to think like them. And so my curiosity with God, hey God, what are you doing today? What are you thinking about today? What is it, how are you moving? What's going on, right? When I begin to ask questions, and it can be really simple, I would encourage you not to only pray and ask God questions when your like whole family's future is on the line, right? Like some people think, well, I don't wanna bother God with that. You're not bothering God. God actually delights in communion with you. He's actually waiting. If you wanna ask him what to put on your sandwich, he'd, he'd love to be in that with you, right? It's not that I need his permission to put, to put cheese on my sandwich. But, but he actually, we're not gonna bother him. He's got enough headspace for all of us. But that we would just become sensitive to him and begin to ask him questions. I believe that curiosity and awe are two of the greatest ways to cultivate sensitivity to him. We have people in our church family who like God speaks to them through like every sunset, every twig, every like blow of the breeze, the newspaper, through all that stuff. And, and, and if we can develop that kind of awe, that kind of sensitivity to God, where it's like God's actually speaking. Right, Julie? Like, like yeah, he, he just said something. I was looking up the story of Moses this week. Did you know that when, when God appeared to Moses first, it was in the burning bush, right? And it, it basically says that it caught, in Exodus 3, it caught Moses' attention. And he, he looked at it with curiosity, essentially. And he's like, huh, that's not just a bush that's on fire, which to me, that would get my attention, right? But that bush is on fire and it's not burning, And so he he thought, I guess I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll move over there. That's called a sign. And a sign is not pointing to itself, right? Like a road sign that says a city, the city is not in the sign, right? The sign's telling you of a direction to go. So he sees the sign a bush that's on fire that's not burning. But it, it, it honestly, when you read it in Exodus 3, it doesn't sound like it was actually that obvious. Like we probably think like a huge live oak on fire, right? And so he draws near. And, and in drawing near, he hears the voice of God and he responds. And he begins this relationship with the presence of God. So much so that as he matures in the presence of God, he has to put a veil over his face to hide the glory that he's experienced. Samuel, Samuel hears a whisper in the night and he keeps bothering Eli whose house he's living in. Eli says, hey, I am not calling you. I wanna sleep, leave me alone. That's probably God. Just answer him. Samuel develops a lifestyle with such sensitivity to the presence of God. But it came because he responded to a whisper in the night. Will we 
allow our lives to be moved by the presence of God? Will we cultivate an awareness to his moving, his working in us? I believe that that's what God is looking for. I believe that co-laborers are born out of that place. It means this, that we throw away our lists and we start listening to God. That we say, okay, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be led by you. You say that those who are your children are led by your spirit. I'm gonna put you to the test. Would you lead me? You say that those who are led by the spirit don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. I'm gonna surrender my sin habits to developing a sensitivity to you. I believe as we do, that what will develop in us is an incredible communion with God. I, love, I heard a guy say recently, if you make history with God, he'll make history with you. What would it look like to develop a rich history with God? I believe that's what God is calling us to so that we could say, I only do what I see the Father doing. And it doesn't mean this. Some of you are very, very, very practical thinkers. It doesn't mean that you don't go to work. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't have fun, okay? It doesn't mean that you can't watch a movie. But what it means is, is that I'm just gonna be open to God and, and realize that if the presence of God is the fullness of joy, then God's, he, he's got to be into having a good time. You don't have to be stuffy to be aware of the presence of God. In fact, being aware of the presence of God will make you not stuffy. You can still watch football, Kenny, yes. I believe that that's what God wants to do in us. I want to do something a little bit Interesting, just really just being sensitive to the presence of God as we wrap up. Worship team, you guys can come back up. I uh, had a guy come to me during worship and he said, I feel like God wants to do something through the people who are currently aware of the presence of God. Hope that they would just lay hands on people. Fresh dose of joy. I feel like God has that for us this morning. So if you need prayer, if you just want to sit, we're going to just have them continue to play for a few more minutes. But these folks would love to pray with you. I, I've got a hunch that there's one or two people here who you haven't had a chance to give your life to Jesus. You haven't said, hey, Jesus, I'll, I, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And if you'd like to do that, they'd love to pray with you up here at the front. And... Uh, we're just going to kind of continue. Feel free to leave. Um, it'd probably be good to go get your kids in the next couple of minutes. Um, if you want to bring them back in here, you can do that if we're still going. Do you just hold out your hands? Jesus, you're really good. Thank you that you promised your Holy Spirit to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are waking us up to you. Thank you that we are becoming aware of you. Thank you, Lord, that you're always with us. You told us you'd never leave us or forsake us.
We love you, Jesus. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Would you just say with me, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Say it again, I love you, Jesus.